So we're in part two of a series. The series is called Right in the Eye. And we started up last week. So if you missed last week, you can go to hammockstreetchurch.com, check on our resources tab. You can watch it there. You can watch it on our YouTube channel as well. But as we started talking about last week, the topic of this series is pretty apropos to the time in which we are living nowadays. Nowadays, as opposed to the time period during which many of us grew up, nowadays people's personal feelings and people's individual desires have been somehow elevated to a position of supreme importance. And I don't know what made me think about looking into this, but watch this. The first camera was invented by a French scientist whose name is Joseph. Oh, boy. This is a tough French name, and I had somebody help me with it, but I don't think I remember how it works. But Nisifore Nisip. Anyway. Sorry, he's been dead a very long time, so he will not be offended by that. But he invented the camera in 1816. It would take another 194 years before society would change enough to need something that few people ever predicted that anyone would want on a camera. By 2010, society had changed And in order to meet the needs of an increasingly self-centered populace, a previously seldom used or rarely needed piece of camera technology became available to everybody. Do you know what that piece of camera technology was? In 2010, with the release of the iPhone 4, the most utilized camera in the world, it included a feature that allowed the camera to take what has become the most important type of photo in the world. What is it? The selfie. Or if you're English, the ussy. That's what it is. We have become the most self-absorbed, narcissistic society in human history. Congratulations. Nowadays, our society is all about me. Our society is now associated with phrases like my lived experience and my reality, and of course, my truth. Nowadays, we're defined by the notion that because the world revolves around me, I get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. And as we saw last week, one of the problems with that approach is that if you do it for too long, inevitably and invariably, you will hurt someone. Eventually and invariably, you're going to hurt you at least. And you are someone. And you'll also hurt other people. If you have a parent, living in this me-centered way is going to hurt your parents. And if you have people you love, living in a self-centered way is going to hurt the people you love. And if you continue to practice long enough, eventually, you're even going to hurt the people who come along after you, your kids or your your grandkids. Maybe, Maybe you come from a situation where your parents did that to you. In every stage of our lives, the practice of doing what I want, when I want, with whom I want, hurts someone else eventually. 
what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, anybody else, will eventually hurt somebody. So to address this issue, in this series, we're looking at the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we call it, and we're looking at a book called the Book of Judges. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for allowing us to dig into this ancient text, your word that you've given us, the word that has been around for thousands of years and yet is as relevant today as it was then. God, as we, as we read the scripture today and talk about the book of Judges, we ask that you would use your wisdom to guide us, to change our hearts and minds, and to draw us closer to you. We love you, God. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Judges is a book detailing a period of Israelite history that took place between the time that Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, brought the people from their 40-year sojourn in the desert following their escape from slavery in Egypt. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt or if you've seen The Ten Commandments, the old Cecil B. DeMille film, you've seen the story. It's the story of how Joshua brought the people into the land that God had promised to give them. That's why we call it the promised land. Now, at the outset, things ran smoothly for the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. He was a general. He was a great leader. Even though Joshua wasn't a, Joshua wasn't a king, he was an accepted leader, and he implemented God's law among the people, which is exactly the way that God designed it to be. God was supposed to be their only king, and then the law would keep people orderly and in line. But then, Joshua died, and thus began the period of Judges. So the period of Judges lasts about 300 years. And, and anyway, to give you a little perspective, don't forget, the United States, I think it's this year, is celebrating our 250th anniversary. So we've been around as a country for 250 years, and these periods of time we're talking about are even longer than the United States has been around. So this is quite a long period of time. We tend to kind of gloss over that because it's so long ago, we kind of mush everything together as if it just happened then or in the past. It, happened, it took a long period of time to happen. But this is, remember, we're a society where if something doesn't go well, I was talking to a bunch of people about the dolphins lost this, uh, this weekend and how everybody's complaining now that we need a new coach, we need a new quarterback, we need new running backs. We can't wait six months for things to change. In the Bible, things took hundreds of years to change. So, so we certainly have a compressed notion of time. But for 300 years, God raised up a number of judges to administer his law and to govern his people. But that did not go very well. So the Israelites, God's people, proceeded to go through a period of seven different cycles, during which, and every cycle looked the same, the people would disobey God, and things would collapse around them, and then they'd cry out to God for help. They'd say, God, please deliver us from this collapse, and then God would rescue them. And that only just started the cycle all over again. And at the very end of the book, I'm not really sure what's going on with my slides here, but at the very end of the book, which is where we started last week, the writer of the book said this. So I'm going to go to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. So Cam, if you see that, Go ahead and click on that or make sure you have the right slide. All right, but I'll read it to you. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
There was no king of Israel. So everybody just basically made things up as they went along. Everybody just did what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, with whom they wanted to do it. And it was a dumpster fire. This is last week's. That's what that is. It was an absolute dumpster fire. It was an absolute mess. It just never worked out for them, and yet they kept doing it. And that's where we began last week. So if you were here last week, you know that we started on a horrible story from the book of Judges. Now, I'm not going to rehash the story. I encourage you to go back and listen next, uh, to last week's message. But suffice it to say, it's tough to find a worse story in all of ancient literature. It left off on a sour note. The story we read last week left us with no heroes, with no redemption, and with no good outcome. It ended with the statement that we just saw. Let me see if I can get this to come up. No. All right, I'll keep on going on. Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, today, we're going to look at the beginning of the book of Judges. So you got that? Last week, we started at the end. This week, we're going to start at the beginning. And at the beginning of the book of Judges, it's sort of the opposite. The opposite thing happened. It's the opposite of the end. At the beginning of the book of Judges, there is the same level of hope, hopefulness among the people, as a friend of mine likes to say, is like the last night at church camp. Has anyone ever been to church camp here? Anybody? Okay, a few of you have. Obviously, I didn't grow up in church camp, but as I've been a pastor for 20 years or so, I've had the opportunity to take a bunch of students to church camp. And I have to tell you that the church camp experience has to be one of the most I'm going to make up a word, Christian-y experiences in the entire world. It is just, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what it is if you've never been in a church before. Quite frankly, the experience is at the same time pretty weird and pretty amazing. So for those of you who are familiar with the practice, let me ask you a question. At the end of church camp, what do all the girls do on the last night of church camp? Can anybody guess? They cry. All the girls cry at the end of church camp. This is our church camp um, the summer before this one, summer before last. This is the picture of the last night of church camp with all the girls standing together with their arms around each other crying. Last, uh, last summer I took the youth group to youth camp up in central Florida. And at the end of our time there at our, our large group gathering and the worship music's going on and people are just praising the Lord. I mean, the tears were flowing. It is a thing. And when one person starts crying, that's all it takes. Just open the literal floodgates of tears, and it spreads through the whole crowd like wildfire, and everybody's sobbing, and oh, Jesus, I love you. It's really, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's actually really cool to be a part of. It's really interesting to watch. The students spend a week together, and they're singing praises to God every morning, and they're worshiping God with their, with their prayer, and they're listening to Bible teaching, and then they're breaking off into groups and having Bible discussions. And by the end of the week, they're just 
overwhelmed by Jesus. They're overwhelmed by the feelings of love and caring that their friends have been showing them all week. It's really the time when, when teens are just at their best. You know, they're just so sweet to each other and everybody's helping each other. Oh, it's really an amazing thing. And it's in those emotional moments that they're just all jacked up and they're ready and they're willing to commit to all sorts of promises. They'll make promises like crazy in order to prove that their feelings about God at that moment are sincere and they're permanent. These are permanent feelings. They're like, oh God, I promise I'll never disobey my parents again. I can tell some of you have teenagers. God, I'll never curse again. I promise. I'll never drink or smoke or vape. I, I, I promise God to people have daughters. I, they say, I'll promise God, I'll break up with that boy that my parents don't like. I promise. And for you that have sons, God, I promise I won't hang around that girl anymore. I know my parents don't like him. I promise, I promise, God, I'll be good. I'll stop hanging around those people who are bad for me and who are leading me in the wrong direction. I promise, I promise, I promise in Jesus' name, amen. And though these moments are really good, and they are really good moments, they often have the shelf life of an overripe banana. They don't last long. So why am I talking about church camp? I thought we were talking about judges. Because the beginning of the book of Judges starts off sounding like the last night of church camp. Now, in order to see what I'm talking about, we're going to go to the book that comes before the book of Judges, which you might be able to guess is the book of Joshua. Okay, so that's the book. comes right after the, uh, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua is the next book. So it's a story of Moses' right-hand man, General Joshua, who comes in and what he does for God's people. So the book of Joshua comes to an end when Joshua is about to die. So we go to Joshua chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. After a long time had passed, the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. So they're in a peaceful era. Joshua's doing a great job leading. Israel's at peace with its neighbors. Joshua, by then, is a very old man. So he summoned all of Israel, their elders, their leaders, their judges, and officials, and he says to them the obvious, I am very old. Okay, so Joshua's getting ready to leave the people on their own. Here's what he tells them, verse 14. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Throw away those old gods and serve the Lord. Now, this is Joshua's way of essentially telling the people to give up all the bad things they had been doing and to serve only God. Now, the people listening to this, well, they're all fired up. Joshua's been doing a great job. They're feeling particularly blessed and spiritual. So they assure Joshua in verse 16, huh, far be it for us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Far be it from us. Now, you could read that. We don't talk like that. You could read it saying, of course we will remain faithful. Josh, they, they call them Josh. We know where our bread is buttered. I mean, we know. We mean, after all, it was God himself who brought us and our parents out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And not only that, the Lord drove out before us all the other nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. 
Seriously, Josh, we get it. You don't need to nag us. God is our king. He's given us the law. We're so thankful. You don't have to worry about us. But Joshua's no dummy. He knew his people better than they knew themselves. So he wasn't buying their promises. So here's what he says. 24:19. He says, "You're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you." All right, so you get that? They, they said they recognized all the good things that God did for them, bringing them up out of Egypt, bringing them up out of slavery. They said, don't worry, God will never turn our back on you. We'll never be disobedient. You've got, our, you've got our undivided attention. And Joshua says, yeah, I'm not buying it. And the people, even though they continued to assure Joshua they'd remain faithful, Joshua just never believed them. And then Joshua died. And the people remained in the promised land. Joshua, son of Nun, a servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. He had a pretty good run, didn't he? So, guess what happened? Before long, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. We'll talk about them in a second. The Israelites began doing the very thing that Joshua warned against. They began to do all of the things that they just sworn up and down that they'd never do again. They began to do all of the stuff that they'd been doing before they went off to church camp. What'd they do? They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. So notwithstanding their promises to God, they noticed what everyone around them was doing. They said, okay, God, I hear how you want me to live this life, but everybody looks like they're having a really good time. Like everybody looks like they're having a lot of fun around us. We want to do that too. We don't want to be set apart from these people. We don't want them to think we're a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of religious weirdos. They wanted to do what the world around them was doing. So they walked away from their God. They walked away from their king. And they immersed themselves in the culture of the pagans about which Joshua warned them. They adopted the practices that they swore they'd never return to. And when they did, they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served, the Baal, served Baal and the Asherahs. Okay, now there's who we're talking about here. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal was the son of El, the chief god. And Asherah was Baal's mother. And she was the Canaanite goddess of the sea. The Canaanites were a seafaring people. Now, God had a lot of problems with his people worshiping Baal and Asherah. In addition to the fact that they were represented by idols, which is a big no-no for the Israelites, Baal and Asherah required human sacrifice in order to worship them. That is a huge no-no under Jewish law. Under some circumstances, if that wasn't bad enough, they required Child sacrifice, not just human sacrifice, child sacrifice. God did not want his people to be any part of that. But that's where God's people turned. And so, verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave the Israelites into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around who were no longer 
whom they were no longer able to resist. They were in great distress. So in essence, God says to them, all right, if you like the Canaanites so much, I'll let the Canaanites destroy your society. I'll let the Canaanites drag you into their disgusting culture. God said to his people, you were so quick to abandon me, so now I'll just help you to do so. Just as quickly, I'm going to give you to them, and thereby you will abandon that freedom that I gave to your ancestors. And before they knew it, as we just read in Judges 2, God made it so that the nations around them were overrunning the Israelites from the left and from the right. They walked away from God to follow the people and cultures around them, and they gave up their very freedom in the process. And when all is said and done, and this is our point today, even though we can't see it while it's happening, when we unwittingly slip into the cycle of I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, before we know it, we find ourselves trapped. We find ourselves stuck in a doom loop that we just can't escape. We find that we've traded the king of the universe for a lesser king, for an evil king, for a king that doesn't allow us to be free, even though the promise is that he does, but a king that steals our freedom altogether. Now, there's a lesson for all of us in this story. We have all, at one time or another, to one degree or another, And I say we of all, I mean all of us, me included, we've been coaxed away from our moral lives or some of our moral behaviors into living in a way that we just know in our heart isn't right. And if I can recast that in terms that we're discussing in this series, we've all somewhere along the way decided, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. I want to live my own life, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't need a king, and I certainly don't need some invisible God who never lets me do what I want to do anyway. And then one day, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, just wait. It will. One day you'll realize, wow, it did not go the way I planned it. That did not work out the way I hoped it would work out at all. My exercise of what I thought was freedom actually caused me to lose my freedom. And the reason for that is, without knowing it, you just traded one king for another. Because the truth is, you were created. You are a created being. You have a creator. And you, and you weren't created to be your own king. You were created, and I was created to be lorded over, to be ruled over by a king. And as a result, whenever you say no to one king, you're just saying yes to another king. And that's just who we are. That's just human nature. You can't escape it. And that's precisely how the devil was able to tempt Eve in the garden in the beginning. If you remember, back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, Genesis comes from the Hebrew word Bereshith, which means beginning. So in the beginning, okay, But from the beginning, people just wanted to be in charge of their own lives. If you remember Genesis 3, 5, the deceiver, Satan, the adversary comes along and says to the woman Eve, he says, come on, did God really tell you not to eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? You know why he might have said that? You know why he said that? For God knows that when you eat of it, you won't need him anymore. Your eyes will be opened. 
you will be just like God. You won't require a God. You'll know good from evil. You won't need him telling you. The devil comes along and says, you don't need a God. You can be perfectly and completely autonomous on your own. Come on, you're a smart person. You can choose for yourself. But no one can be completely autonomous. We saw this after COVID. You know, a big problem of the COVID lockdowns were the isolation that people felt was the isolation. A lot of people are still struggling years later because they were so isolated from other people. No one can be completely autonomous. We were created to be ruled. And when we say no to the creator king, we're just choosing a different king. Let me ask you, is this a weird concept? Are you struggling with this concept a little bit? It's not easy to think about because you're like, oh, no one rules over me and I'm an American and we're free and all that. Try thinking about it this way. Our appetite is one of the kings that rule over us. Now, we have lots of appetites in this world. When I say appetite, immediately you think food. We certainly have appetites for food. We have to eat every day. Food keeps us sustained. It's something we all have appetites for food. But it could also be our appetite for wealth or for wealth accumulation. It could also be an appetite for power. When we look at what's going on in our government, lots of appetite for power there. It could be an appetite for significance or importance. It could be an appetite for control. It could be an appetite to just be right all the time, to have everybody else think you're right all the time, or, or to feel like you know more than everybody else. You have to be that person who knows more than everybody else in the room. Lots of appetites. You, you get the point. They're all appetites that we can choose to submit to over submitting to God. They're all just different versions of the same drive in us that says, I want what I want, when I want it, with whom I want. And we all eventually get to the point where we just get tired of resisting these appetites and we just give in. You know, oh, I'm not going to watch any movies that'll make me think bad thoughts and all that and just the bombardment of all the ads and all the movies and everybody's talking about them before, you know, eh, you know what, I'll give in. And we give in invariably, which means it doesn't change, and eventually it means it's going to happen. We get to the place where we realize, uh-oh, I shouldn't have given in. This appetite I gave into is ruining my life. This appetite is taking away from me the things that are really important, the things that I truly love. This appetite has become the boss of me, has become the ruler of my life. And as followers of Jesus, these feelings are exacerbated. See, when we profess to follow Jesus, when we've confessed our sinfulness to God, we all come into this world broken, we all come into this world disconnected from God because we're not perfect, we violate God's laws knowingly and unknowingly constantly all the time. When we confess that sinfulness to God and we cry out to Jesus, God the Son, and we say, save us from our sinfulness, save us from our disconnect from God, save us to an eternal connection with God and his righteousness... When we've committed ourselves to follow Jesus, we've committed ourselves to live in obedience to him. We've committed ourselves to devote our lives to him and follow him forever. But, well, then you got to leave the house. And when we interact with our world, when we interact in the place that we live, the place that we work, the places that we play, and, and, and we find out something we didn't expect. We find out now we're, we're the odd man out. Now we're the weirdo. Now we're the strange person. Now the, we're the religious person. Living as a Jesus follower in a world that stresses and advocates for individualism and even libertinism. Libertinism 
is giving in to the more seedy side of what we can do and what we can't do. Liberty is freedom. Libertinism is giving in to stuff that you know isn't good for you, but you're doing it anyway. As Christians in this world, if we don't do that, we just seem like weirdos. So we start to feel really self-conscious and we start to feel really insecure about it. And this particularly happens when, when you're a young person and you're getting into your early adult years and you've done this great job of living as a Christian all the way up until that time. You're still living with your folks and maybe you're part of your church group and all that. And then you go off on your own and you realize people in the world aren't like this by and large. And you start to feel weird and a lot of people don't like to feel weird. And sometimes we just get tired of being left out, being ostracized. So we give in to this insecurity. And we eventually let our insecurity just sort of rule over us. And our insecurity then takes us down roads we never wanted to travel. We never thought we would travel. And we end up being ruled by things like comparison. The internet's really bad for that because we get to see the highlight reels of everybody's lives and we compare our day-to-day life to their curated highlight lives. And we say, oh, gosh, look how much happier everybody is. Look how much prettier everybody is. Look how much skinnier everybody is. Look how much wealthier everybody is. We're just comparing them. But that is a God, the God of comparison. Then there's the God of lust. You can't open any app on on the Internet nowadays, on your phone nowadays, without just having that, that lustful desire being triggered. We get enthralled with the gods of greed or pleasure or rebellion, or desire, or overindulgence, along with so many other things. And we turn our back on the very God who brought us into this world and sustained us through this world. But I want you to think about this. If there is a God who loves you, if there's a God who understands the power that forgiveness has to break the chains of the past, if there's a God who wants something better for you, then why wouldn't you want to say yes to that God? Why wouldn't you want to say yes to that creator king? But you know what? The I want what I want when I want it with whom I want it life, lived by serving a lesser king, will always, always, even though it draws you in, it will always lead you away from the abundant life that our creator king has for you. But you have to be aware. You have to be on your guard. You have to be diligent. Because all of those lesser kings, they're not going to stop trying to tempt us. And they'll do it the same way that the serpent in the garden did it with Eve. They'll convince us to look at God's way, but then respond with a simple no. With a simple, I won't. I won't obey. I won't be morally pure. I won't always be honest. I won't be governed by some budget. I won't do the thing I know I should do. And have you realized this yet? Because I learned it as a young professional, and it actually, I just felt like it was setting me free. There's something freeing about saying, no, I won't. I remember as a young lawyer, somebody came into the office, and they had a case for me to look at, And I was reading through the case. It was a decent case. I'm thinking, okay, I'll probably take this case. But the client was horrible. Just an awful, awful, awful person. She yelled. She stomped her feet. She cursed me out. She was very unpleasant. And I'm thinking, I don't want to work for this lady. She's awful. 
And before I got a contract for her to sign, because I felt like I'm a young lawyer, I can't turn away business, I went to the guy who became my law partner, and I said, what do I do here? And he said, you know, they outlawed slavery in this world, in this country. I said, yes, so? He said, you don't have to work for anybody you don't want to work for. You get to say no. Oh, no. Well, that was freeing. Mrs. So-and-so, I won't represent you. She cursed me out and left the room, but you know what? I felt so good. Someone clapped for that. Yeah. (laughs) Now, you can test this statement at home if you have a child. If you have a child, pay attention to that mischievous look of glee they have in their eyes the first time they say no to you. (laughs) No. You picture it? If you have young kids or you had young kids, you tell them to do something and they go, no. They just look so powerful when they're doing that. They just look so happy. Well, that's what all the lesser kings in our lives do to us. They get us to say, I won't. But as some, if not all of you here today, can painfully attest, eventually your I won't will turn into, will morph into an I can't. I want to stop, but I can't. I can't stop. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop fooling around. I can't stop eating so much. I can't back away. I can't quit. I can't admit it now. I can't live without it. I want to change. I want to go back to the way that I was. I want to like myself again. I want to return to my family and my relationships, but I can't anymore. And you want to know why it works that way? Because the lesser kings of lust and greed and comparison and insecurity and overindulgence and fear, those lesser kings don't love you. They simply don't have your best interests in mind. Now consider this. Why is it that it's always easier to say no to the one true God than it is to say no to the things you substitute for God? To say no to all those lesser gods that we substitute for God. Why is it that now that you want out, it's so much more difficult to say no to the thing or the person that you've substituted for God? Why is it so much more difficult to say no to that than it is to say no to God? Why is it much more difficult to say no to the created thing than to the creator king? Why was it so much easier to say no, God, And now that you'd like to say no to this thing that's become an addiction or no to this thing that's begun to control you or no to this thing that's wrecking you financially, why is it so much more difficult to say no to that than it was to your creator king? Well, the answer is it's because the lesser kings are not merciful. The lesser kings will control you. The lesser kings will always take away your freedom. But you need to know this. You need to know that the ultimate freedom is always found under the covering of God's authority. It's like staying in the lane. Driving is a very freeing experience for a lot of people. For a lot of people, don't drive. But for some people, it's a very freeing experience. But you know what? If those lane markers weren't there and if people weren't obeying the lane lines, it wouldn't be freeing anymore. It would be terrifying. Ultimate freedom is always found under the covering of God's authority. And ultimate freedom is never, ever, ever found serving the lesser little substitute kings. Ultimate freedom freedom in this life is found under the covering of God's authority. That's why it's easier to say no to God than it is to say no to the substitute kings. 
So here's how the first story in the book of Judges ends. We find this in Judges chapter 3. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Aram, Nahararaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. So the Israelites were disobedient, and God was mad at them for being disobedient, so he said, fine, you want to be with these people? Fine, be with these people. They'll rule over you for the next eight years. And they suffered for the next eight years at the hands of the man whose culture they insisted on adopting. They suffered under a king whose culture they had embraced. They suffered under a king whose gods they had chosen to worship, and they suffered under him for eight long years. And at the end of eight years, you know what they did? They did what some of you have done. They did what some of you are ready to do or what some of you need to do. They cried out to God and they begged him, God, help, we've sinned. Oh God, we were fooled. Oh God, we did the very thing you warned us about. Oh God, we thought that in exercising our independence, we'd somehow gain more freedom, but now we realize how wrong we were. We now realize that in trying to live out our independence and our autonomy, it didn't make us free. It actually took away our freedom. We've been conquered by the very king and culture that we copied that you told us not to copy. God, help, please deliver us. And what did God do? He raised up for them a deliverer who saved them. You see, that's one one of the wonderful aspects of God. It's repeatedly illustrated throughout the Hebrew Bible. Throughout God's interaction with his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, it's repeated over and over again that our God is a God of mercy. God is so merciful that he'll never force his will on people. He lets his people exercise their own free will. He could make it so we don't deviate, but that's no good. You could order your children every time you walk in the house to say, Mom, Dad, they stand at attention and greet you. Mom, Dad, I love you. You wouldn't really feel the love, would you? But when you're sitting on the couch and nothing's happening and all of a sudden one of your kids comes and runs up and gives you a hug, well, that feels good, right? That's why we get dogs because we can count on a dog to do that. But if you make it happen, it doesn't mean anything. It has to happen on its own. It has to happen under their own free will. That's why it's easy to say no to God, because God's given us ultimate freedom. He's given us ultimate freedom. There's ultimate freedom under the covering of God's authority. God doesn't want to control you. If he wanted to control you, he would have created you controlled. Instead, God wants to love you, and he wants you to love him back. And that's something that the lesser kings just can't understand. And the only way for you to have that kind of love relationship with God is for him to give you the freedom to go where you want to go and to show you his grace and to have the mercy to receive you when you come back. And just as God took Israel back over and over and over again, he's going to take you back too over and over and over again. I got to tell you, from this side of the podium... Nothing gives me more joy. Nothing gives all of us here at Hammock Street more joy than to celebrate the return of somebody who's been out serving a lesser king. But notwithstanding, the tragedy remains that you can't get the time back that you spent when you were far away. Once those years are gone, they're gone. They're wasted serving lesser kings who care not a bit about you or your future. So as we wrap this up and look forward to next week, in our attempts to do what we want, when we want, 
with whom we want. Please understand this. All you're doing is trading one king for another. Whenever you choose to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and you put God in the background, please understand that you haven't chosen your independence. You've just traded one king for another. Amen? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this warning. Thank you for this reminder. And for some of us, thank you for giving us a context for what we're experiencing in our lives right now. God, thank you that at the end of Israel's story and at the end of our story, we see that you're a God of grace and mercy who will always receive us back. So today, Lord, please give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. Give us the wisdom to see as you see and to hear as you hear, and then give us the courage to do what we know in our heart we need to do. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Redeemer and our Forgiver and our Lord.